Welcome to this week's CTO studio. We have a very interesting discussion about the gig economy and about product roadmaps for large customers who insist on you building things for them. Listen. I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It looks something like this. Welcome to the CTO studio. I'm your host, Etienne de Bruin. The CTO studio is where we chat with CTOs building amazing products with incredible teams. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Welcome to the CTO studio, Kamel, Eric, Vidya. Last week was amazing. It was fun. And Vidya was, I asked Vidya, please come back. And she's like, what's the rate? I gave her the rate and she's in. Yeah, gave me a glass of wine. It's awesome. <laughs> that's great. Kamel, CTO of Closing Corp. Closing Corp. Eric, that's right. CTO of Lawn Love. Tell us about CTOing these companies. Kamel, why don't you tell us about Closing Corp? Uh, so Closing Corp is a technology and data company. Uh, we provide services to mortgage lenders. Um, the organization has been around for about 10 years now. So not a startup, but I, I would call it its early stage. Um, and we've experienced some great growth over the past few years. And we continue to grow. So it's very exciting. Love to be part of the company. Love the people I work with. And Looking forward to the, the future growth of the company. And so your customer are the are mortgage lenders? Mortgage lenders, banks, credit unions, non-bank mortgage lenders, yes. And then I think we, when, we, when we spoke, um, did you say that your revenue was sort of a line item on the, on the HUD, on the closing? Uh, no. So what we provide is basically fees that the lenders use uh, as part of the mortgage transaction. So there are, you've heard of the concept of closing costs. Mm. So closing costs are a combination of lender fees, third-party fees, government fees. So we're the provider of that data. We work with all the different third-party providers that the lenders use. To consolidate that. Correct. How can I get on that list of do you provide services to... Which is, what is the service I can provide so <laughs> that I can get the 0.01% something something for whatever something I do? There's so many lines in there that you probably get away with it. I know. You know? That's why I'm like, what is? how it, can I get on that list? Sure. It's it's not what it used to be. You know, regulation is, is, has come a very long way when it comes to, those, uh, to um, what lenders can and cannot charge. So as long as there's a service that they can use you for to fulfill a mortgage transaction, we'll get you on there. Thank you. Maybe like a catering service, sandwiches? Comic relief. Uh, let me think about that. <laughs> He's like, move on, idiot, yeah. move do, on. Do, one question I have is what do title companies do? So it's title insurance. Right. Ah. And so when you get a home, you want to make sure that the title of the home, you know, there's no issues, problems. And so title is basically you're paying for title insurance. Mm. Um, but title insurance is one of the many different verticals uh, that are part of the closing costs. There's So, you know, I've only bought a, a, you know, a house a few times, but it seems like you get a closing cost and then you get a check back. So... 
like is are, are you pulling all the information together and then you're like here's the actual closing costs and the delta and then you're going through and doing the refund is it that whole cycle or is it that one line item uh, well we we provide multiple line items of and it's just the data right so we're not the company that's actually providing the service mm -hmm. we act as a middleman between the lenders and the service providers mm -hmm. and so for example we work with a lot of different title companies and so lenders they come to us and they say here's the title companies that we do business with we they're either on our network so we have a network of these service providers over 20,000 providers nationwide um, they're either on our network or we go out and we get them onto our network and so when the lender now submits a mortgage application the information on a mortgage application to us we go out and we come back with all the providers that can uh, do service for that specific loan application and all the different fees associated with that specific loan application. And mm. then from there, the lender says, okay, I want to use title company A, settlement service provider B, appraisal company, AM, you know, appraisal management company C, here's the fees. They attach that data, those fees to their loan transaction, and then they populate what's called the loan estimate. And is that because they need sort of a third party to do this? Because you can't just do that handshake directly? Because it people tend to use the same services all the time. So I'm so curious that you found this like specific niche Maybe, sure. that is like this kind of data consolidator that you're pulling information out, you're sending it back, but they're not just directly talking to each other. Yeah, so now some of the larger providers have the ability for you to integrate directly to them or you can go out to them and get those fees directly. But calculating the fees is such a complex um, process and managing those fees to ensure that they are accurate it is very time consuming and takes a lot of resources. So we basically, you know, that's our expertise. So our resources are just focused on going out, getting that data. Our technology then applies all the calculations and the logic to ensure that those fees are accurate and then those get delivered to lenders. Okay, last geek out question, okay, for like we go deep in the housing sort of like business. But if, if you're having people sell their own houses, do you, they still use you, or can is that no longer something that they need to do? Whoever is purchasing the house, mm -hmm. if, if if it's not a full cash uh, purchase, they're getting a loan from a lender. And then they have to use and you then, from the lender. Well, if the lender is our customer, right, they right. would use us to pull the you know to get the accurate fees. Mm. Um, but not every lender uses us. Someday. And, and, and how? Uh, I'm I'm curious about your market utilization. So mm -hmm. for closing corp. Are there just many of data companies like you and it's sort of a carte blanche for the lenders or is it a very sort of old money, old established, like if I think of title companies, yes. been around mm -hmm. since the 70s. Yes. Like what, how does, what is your market utilization? So we have roughly about, uh, based on estimates that we've um, calculated, we have about 22% market share. We are the largest provider of this sort of service. Um, there isn't that many providers. So who we consider as potentially our next competitor has about 10%. There is two or three that have a little bit, you know, 1% here, 2% there. Who we really compete with are the lenders themselves doing it in-house. Mm -hmm. But when they come to us and based on when they do the cost-benefit analysis and the compliance and the accuracy that, that, that's required, um, it's a, it's a no-brainer. 
fascinating. It is fascinating. And are there, is it like hundreds of transactions or tens or thousands of transactions? A month? Yeah. Oh. Hundreds. Oh, oh no. Like a day? No, no. We So on a month, so la- last month we had over half a million transactions Holy go through shizzles. our system. 22% of the market. I hear you. Wow. Can you help that's, me get my house refinanced? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Can I you, can, can you recommend delete those you to closing the costs? <laughs> By the way, now this is a serious question. Can you help me get a construction loan? Well, we don't do the loan. No, I we, know, yeah. but you know people, right? Yes, absolutely, we can. Can we end this episode we, early? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take find a T and a construction loan lender. The um, something we're very proud of is we've been able so the top. Uh, 22 of the top 25 lenders in the country or 21 of the top 25 lenders in the country are our customers. Amazing. And so, um, so yeah, we see a lot of volume go through our platform. That's really cool. It is. So when you say 22% of the market, you're referring to one out of every five home sales is going through Closing Core, essentially. They're providing the data that enable that to happen. Home sales or refinances. Could you tell us when the bottom of the market sort of hits so that we can know like when to kind of like buy that? Ex- like, can you just let us know? Totally legit. Right. If, if, if you I have the data, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> if, I, if I knew that, I wouldn't be sitting here. You right know now. that, Kamel. <laughs> I'd be on a yacht somewhere <laughs> sipping my tie. I mean, don't you know that, bro? I have closing cost data. But you know I what the trends are. I can tell you what, what the closing cost of the home you're planning to buy would be. Oh, we have a product. But don't you have a appraisal We can data? totally, like, yeah, exactly. You have all that information. And you know the volume. You we know where it's going. We have the values. We have the appraisal fee. I could tell you what it'll cost you to do an appraisal on your home. <laughs> okay, okay. But you don't have the appraisal value. So the lenders send that to us as part of the mortgage transaction. Go. Boom. And boom. So no, but, but that, that, you can get that. You don't need us to get that but, information. But you have all Go on Zillow that you you'll get that there. It's publicly yeah, available. No. Yeah. Okay. I, th- Thank I you, think I Thanks think for nothing. <laughs> no, no. I think I still think there's a product there. I like, like I think we might have be talking. There's after a lot this. of products. We uh, <laughs> we actually just hired a new uh, a new gal to run our data strategy because we do see that there is potentially other areas where we can monetize the data that we have, and so we're uh, very excited about that. Yeah, we on one of our previous episodes we we geeked out big time on data science and the the reoccurring theme is asking those questions having the wherewithal to say i have this data i should be able to answer these types of questions but then that's only a fraction of the things that you don't even know that that's in that matrix that you you don't even know that you actually can cross correlate those sure um just briefly What's it like to CTO this? Are you, you know, it's so uh, from a technical aspect, it's extremely exciting, uh, and the reason for that is when I joined Closing Corp, the company just—I mean, it's—it's it's been growing, and when I since I've been there, I'm going to be there almost five years. I've seen some some great growth. We're talking, you know, two hundred, three hundred percent growth, and so from a technical standpoint, what was so exciting is making sure that our platform performs and scales really, really well. So yes, we had 500 loan transactions go through our system, but we had over probably 10 million actual calls hit our platform because every loan file, they don't just call us once and that's it. They can they call us multiple times. Mm-hmm. So making sure that we can handle this, the, the volume, 
that our system scales well, that our system performs well, so our response time are uh, acceptable. Because this is not a, they send us the file, they'll go away, and then a day later we send them the information. They're sitting in front of the screens waiting for that response to come back immediately. Because right? they're on the phone potentially with the Absolutely. borrower, and it's like, this is what it looks like. Yes. That's incredible. And I'm assuming this doesn't run on Google Sheets. <laughs> That's incredible. So of that, Kamel, how much of that was known before you started and how much of it did you discover kind of after you accepted the position, like helping them flesh that out? Well, I, one of the reasons that I was hired is to help them scale the organization. And obviously my responsibility with the technology group and the, the products themselves, not so much from a feature and functionality, but making sure that they scale well and the performance is there. And so going into it, I knew that that was a big part of my uh, you know, job responsibility. Um, but seeing the amount of growth that we've experienced in the time period, uh, you know, I didn't have the luxury of time. I, you know, I, I had a great team that I work with and a lot of them are still with me today. Mm-hmm. Just hit the ground running, figure out, put a plan together, identify the gaps the areas we need to improve from an architecture and performance standpoint and just focus on making sure that we're ahead of the curve. So as this volume started coming in, our platform did not, you know, crumble or, you know, break or anything like that. Very good. Very good. Any, <laughs> any other? <laughs> no. We're just stunned at how much data you as, have. Oh. It's like, it's just, I mean, and that's just mind boggling, like that many transactions, like going through that. And I, I bet you're s- sitting on some really interesting insights about things that you can do with it. We, we are, and, and we're just scratching the yeah. surface. Again, this, 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 guy, this lady that we've hired, uh, tons of knowledge on how to monetize data, has been in this industry for a very long time, worked with some of the largest data providers in this, in this industry. And so, you know, Part of our service is also what I mentioned, you know, part of the closing cost is um, government pro- uh, government fees, right? So your property tax, your recording fees, your transfer tax. So from a recording fees and transfer tax perspective, we just have a team dedicated that reaches out to, there's about 3,800 counties nationwide that we are in touch with to ensure that the recording fees and the transfer taxes and a lot of that, a lot of the information that goes with that is accurate and up to date. And so just, you know, the, the opportunity there is, is, is phenomenal. But then the, the, the disbursement of those fees is not this beyond what you, you, you just provide the, accu- the, the accurate data, but the trend, the actual movement of money happens from yes. the lender. That's on. right. That's right. Do you have any questions for Eric? Eric. <laughs> um, so how is it being the, the, the CTO of Lawn Love? I know there's been some, some great growth there. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. your yeah, story. Yeah, story. certainly. Can you tell us what Lawn Love is? So Lawn Love, um, the shortest explanation is it's the Uber of lawn care. So you have a yard, you have grass, that grass is continually growing. Someone has to cut it. So Lawn Love exists to um, help you find contractors mm-hmm. that specialize in cutting grass and mm-hmm. you know shaping hedges to your delight as well as handling turf maintenance so fertilization we control um, all sorts of different outside the home services um, so exists in a marketplace model where you have uh, contractors doing the work and consumers that are needing that work to be done so most of the lawn care professionals really enjoy being outside and you know kind of turning that 
brown yellow turf into something that's verdant and wonderful and they're not quite as skilled with marketing sales customer acquisition how do you handle billing um, can you accept credit cards does the customer leave money under the doormat so uh, lawn love exists to kind of help them stay busy they've invested a lot of money in their equipment needed to do the work and um, years of experience um, kind of refining those skills and then can help them kind of keep their routes full so that the you know truck loans and trailers and all the other equipment involved can be paid off and working for mm. them. Mm. And you guys are a, a Y Combinator graduate, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, spring of summer 2014. What was that like? So I was not at Lawn Love during the uh, the incubation phase or uh, up in up in the bay going through the boot camp there, but our CEO and founder um, definitely a tremendous experience for him just as far as um, having so many people physically next to him that can help him kind of work through understanding exactly what Camille was saying, kind of planning for that expected growth to come and um, teaching him all of the, the different aspects needed of venture capital raising and um, how to build teams and, and just kind of how to carefully spend the money that you raise. And so it's, uh, it's definitely been part of our, I think, success story to be part of that network and being able to reach out and um, just talk to data scientists at Sprig mm. or Lyft or just, just all these different connections that open up and um, people, it turns out, are very willing to help. And so just by expressing like, a, oh, hey, you know, we're trying to figure out the best way to do uh, some kind of incentive program for new lawn care providers. And then to be able to speak to a team at Lyft or Uber that has done the same work, just again, through those uh, those YC networks, um, has been a great way to borrow other people's expertise and, you know, kind of take it and filter it to make sure that it's applicable to lawn love and um, just continue that upward growth trajectory. So where are you now? What kind of market share do you have and where are, what that cities? Is a great question. So 22%, not bad, not bad. If lawn love was a uh, 22% of the lawn care marketplace, they'd be doing more than 40 billion a year in revenue. Wow. So um, lawn love is not 22% of the market by any stretch, but we are in 135 cities currently. So started off here in Southern California, um, but has expanded everywhere from um, down here in San Diego all the way up to Portland, Maine. So most of the country. So, so what's what's stopping? I mean, what's uh, what are the challenges with that? With growing beyond that, getting to that 20, 30, 40 percent market share. Mm. Um, a number of challenges. The I think primary one being how do you get supply to kind of keep keep expanding and, and growing deeper into every single city, um, coming up with new customer acquisition strategies to kind of find the type of consumer that's more apt to open up the yellow pages um, and, you know, use that or the word of mouth from the neighbor to, to find the gardener, as they call them in San Diego. Um, so the market is, is very fragmented. Um, the largest lawn and landscape companies are only worth their market caps are about four billion, um, and uh, most of them are not in services. They're more in the supply side, as far as like chemical applications and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So, um, to truly dominate the U.S. market, Lawn Love will need to um, reach deep into that supply network and um, find ways to continue bringing value to the lawn professionals, so that their word of mouth can kind of um, bring more pros onto the platform. Um, leaving the you kind know, of customer acquisition strategy to uh, to lawn love. 
it is an interesting it's almost like it's not the uber of lawn love it's more the grub hub of landscaping because well, the reason i say that is the the way that your landscapers perform affects the lawn love brand right yes so it's like but with a restaurant we, l- let me let me put it differently if i let's say i order something from grubhub and i use tender greens as my food supply and grubhub as my delivery and they and they screw it up mm-hmm. am i going to be pissed at grubhub or at tender greens uh, who are you so i'm sure it's happened so who are you mad at no, I'm, 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 my wife had a bad experience, but I'm just saying that there's – I had a bad experience with Instacart, actually, where they delivered something two and a half hours after their promised delivery date. So they went to Albertsons. They bought my stuff. Then they, the, apparently the guy had a crisis at his house, took my stuff to his house, <laughs> sat there for two and a half hours, and then decided to come and deliver it to me. I made the mistake of trusting the delivery estimate and planned my Sunday afternoon grilling around and we had guests and so anyways it was a total shit show. Oh my goodness. Instacart then says, Yes, Instacart.com <laughs> said to me So I, I gave the guy a one star rating because I'm like, if you can't deliver shit from in Albertsons, I mean, why are you doing this? I don't want to know about your house household issues. Then I gave him a one star. Think I'm doing him a service, and also letting Instacart know that this sucked. Instacart gets back to me within minutes, and they say to me, "So so sorry this happened. Here is a five dollar discount on the <laughs> next time you use us." Yeah, I'm like fuck you. <laughs> they all do that though. I mean, I had the same experience with DoorDash. But I didn't have a problem. I don't have a problem with Albertsons. That's right, because it's the delivery. It's at your one stop. Yeah. So you're saying that I'm it's saying, all low and love. But there, it's if 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 mm. you're obfuscating the user from the actual, or maybe not. But there, you may have a problem where it's the lawn love guys that screwed up. Or it doesn't it matter who screwed up, right? Who you're paying? You're paying lawn love, sure. yes. and so that's the person that you're Is looking that, at. Uh, you're paying the full amount to lawn love, right? right? Mm-hmm. That's yes. who you hired. So yes. well, whoever shows up and does the work, it doesn't matter. It's so isn't that supremely dangerous? Is it supremely dangerous? <laughs> no, I, was, I was asking it's, you. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's certainly that's one of the key challenges, right, is how do you bring this incredibly heterogeneous supply? You have um, some truly spectacular gardeners that do bring lawns back from near death, and then you have um, other people that it's just shocking that they've managed to acquire this equipment. Right? It's like, who yeah, lets we, you borrow We that? have one of them. <laughs> Lawnlove.com. I, I, I'm seriously writing that down. I'm going. Um, and yeah, and so what um, our strategy has been is um, first being very careful with how are we even acquiring lawn professionals. So Lawnlove is, uh, is very data-driven, not quite to the same extent as Closing Corp, but um, you know, making sure that we understand where the good pros are, are coming from. And so being able to just use that as like the very first step of how are we ensuring that we're only working with the best professionals to kind of stop those problems from recurring. But then um, just kind of analyzing the work habits of of the providers and those rating histories Mm -hmm. and just other events that are related to to lawn mowing. So rescheduling, um, re-quoting. So when a a job is mismatched and um, there's more work that needs to be done, 
than the customer let on, and you know there's a mechanism for providers to uh, to correct that kind of imbalance. And so things like that, trying to kind of stay ahead of it, and when we identify a potential bad actor, you know, taking steps to correct that mm. before someone's lawn gets ruined. But um, I mean, there's a lot of, of challenges that are left in all the on-demand kind of marketplace economies on solving that exact same problem where um, Lawn Love has many other providers that can take care of your grass, but it doesn't matter to some customers because you've, you've already, why would I ever give you another chance? $5 off isn't good enough. It's not going to bring back my priceless topiary. Yeah. No, it's such an interesting thing about customer experience, right? Because mm-hmm. you have hired someone, but you've hired you, but you have this army behind you. Mm-hmm. And how do you define that seamless or standard of customer experience is really interesting. Like Uber does a funny thing about, you know, both rate, like the driver rates you, you rate the driver. And so there's a little bit of a handshake, mm-hmm. which is interesting, but, but your lawns can't talk. So, you know, in terms of what, what condition was it, Are mm. you, do, is it believable, you know, is it the customer is always right? Or how do you think about that? It's an interesting problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, if we had the answer, we would definitely be the uh, 22% of the market currently. But it is just we're working on mechanisms to try and figure out exactly that, you know, through a combination of pictures that lawn care providers take when they arrive at the job. So it's not only a safety net to, you know, show the work that was done, but exactly that, <laughs> like having more data available in the future to kind of figure out, like, is there a way to stay ahead of the customer misrepresenting their needs? I, I also wonder uh, just about the professional services space where by the, it's almost like a contractor. By the time I am hiring a contractor, I've basically admitted defeat, right? Uh, you know, I th- not in all cases, but I basically said, you know what, I'm not going to get to my lawn and... You know, I think there's a quality decision that's made, but I think many, many times it's like, okay, well, I was going to get to it. I'm not going to get to it. I hire this person. You know, I was going to code this whole architecture. I'm not going to be able to staff up for that. I'm just going to outsource it. You know, I, I was going to, you know, I think that there's a, there's a great book I read about this where when, you're, when I come in as a contractor, I need to understand that the people I'm sitting around the table with in some way, have admitted defeat. So the 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 the, the books uh, that says you sh- one of the things I wish I could remember the book's name, but one of the things they say is don't ever provide more than ten. But don't do more than ten percent of value, otherwise you're going to start making them feel more shitty about themselves. So you kind of want to measure your delivery. Anyways, I'll, I'll get the book. It's an interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but but I do wonder in in those situations if. You know, and in, in, in terms of knowing your customer, where are they on their happiness scale? You know, are they are you primed to disappoint them because they are already sort of just agitated? But I think this is a huge need. I mean, you don't want your lawns looking crap. Someone's got to do something, and you've just talked about it being outsourced because I don't have time. And so this idea that this is basic—you've got to be fed, you've got to have your lawn, you have to go through a mortgage these are things that are not luxuries they're just things that if you own a home you've just got to do so I think it's really interesting about the delight factor is little things that go outside the basic service being done Mm -hmm. so what is it that they're looking for like when they do a little extra like when my gardener which is what we call folks here in San Diego will tell me I can replace that flower bed with this this and this this is the kind of plant you should put here. 
that's all delight. Mm. I didn't pay for that. Mm. That's delight. Mm. So I think it's like, you know, I can see a place where you're identifying what kind of customer you have because you have very different types of segments of people who hire and then delighting them that way. So I think that's it's it's pretty interesting. So I don't think it's just this I've given up. It's I need this done and there's every opportunity to make me happier. With the peripheral, it's like the Uber driver who gives you the water bottle and the candy. Exactly. Like, how happy are you when they just say, and then they, they say, does your phone need charging? Like, here. Like, the ones that have it right there. Like, I don't stick. Five stars straight away. <laughs> <laughs> I will be honest. I think um, what, what, what makes me happy about my, my drive is when they have really good music in the car. What about, like, should I tell you that time? The driver started singing. Like, he just started singing. And it was awful. That was terrible. And I was like, how do you tell someone to shut up? I mean, like, seriously. I'm sitting there, like, with dilemma for about 20 minutes. And if you know me, I'm like, I'm not shy about saying stop singing. But he was really into it. And he just didn't stop singing. 20 minutes of pure hell. Uh, my, my, where I get annoyed is when they start asking me a hundred questions. Oh yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll answer the first ten, answer the first fifteen, but they don't stop. And, and I think they're trying to be social, so I can give them five stars. But I'm like, that's where you put I your AirPods in, and you're just like, I'm sorry, I'm on a call. Yeah. But do you also Great feel idea. a little strange when you take a call while being driven, like you're being rude? No. Nope. I have a strange... Eric, do you feel like a <laughs> As a suburbanite, I'm uh, usually in my car, but I'm usually on the other side. So at the CTO conference in Vegas, I was like, oh, I get to experience what Vegas Lyft drivers are like. And I realized that um, they are serious business. You get in the car, we're going from point A to point B. I can ask questions and they just pretend like they can't hear me. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So that Southern hospitality is uh, is not in Las Vegas. <laughs> With yeah. Lyft drivers. With yeah, Lyft it's, drivers. it's interesting. I, I do feel when they have really good music on, not loud, but just like, wow, they like that song, like they're into that channel. I feel sort of, okay, cool cat. <laughs> so, uh, Vidya, tell us about Ad Astra. Yeah. One thing I noticed about people who go through Ad Astra, which is, an, uh, you know, we said there's an, uh, an, an accelerator for female-led um, uh Female founders. Female founders. Uh, I've spoken with a few of them now, and one thing that I that struck me about them is is they can clearly define who their customers are. There, there, there may be a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, so the the what we do is twofold. So the accelerator piece is what you might find at a Y Combinator or a TechStars. It's programming around really understanding product market fit and so forth. Um, and then we layer on the the piece around gender and implicit bias, which is really focused on helping female founders get funding, stand up and being a great leader, and basically combat um, all the biases that are out there that are, that are nobody's fault. They just are there, and they have been since we were very young. But we always start with what's the problem you're solving and who are you solving it for? And we don't move off that until we get it right. So the, I love the fact that you've said they cannot clearly articulate it because it's the biggest problem with most startups. And in fact, tons of companies we work with, it's really stating, like, what is it? What's the problem without your product existing? So 
what would your problem be without your prob without closing corp existing? I'm just going to put you on the spot. Sure. Um, inaccurate fees, and then you're out of compliance. Then now you need to pay big dollar amounts and cut big checks back to the borrowers because you quoted them something inaccurate. And that's the lender. That's the lender. Yes. Yeah. So that's great. So with, I love that. Look at that straight away. It's fantastic. <laughs> and you know your customer. I thought about it. A and few he's times. a CTO. And um, isn't that fantastic? Probably, probably a great CTO. Well, on that note, you know what I've also found, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I'm the, the, at this, but I think people also buy from you because of why you do something, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just how you do it or what you do, but it's also why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of thought that has gone into the the why, what, and how of, of Closing Corp and what we do. And the lenders are probably 90% of our, you know, revenue come from our lenders, but we also do work with service providers and so on. And so, um, but it's a great question. Yeah, and I going to any company and just saying what problem you're solving, it's often quite hard to say it without actually defining a feature or your solution inside the problem. So the fact that mm. you can state it so clearly, and this exists regardless of whether you have a product or not, means that you really understand what you're trying to go after. So that's fantastic. Yeah, one, Look at that great example. Yeah, one thing I that. read was that what you think your customers want is not what your customers want. Like you, we have this image of what we think our customers want from us, and that in many cases it's not what they want from us. You know, they want something else. They want, uh, you know, something that delights them or something that they are passionate about might not be the thing that you've constructed in your head. So I think I personally feel relatively afraid to ask my customers what they want because I'm afraid that it will impede the passion. The thing I want to do, mm -hmm. problem I want to solve, what if it's not the problem my customer wants me to solve? But you could come up with a much better solution because you're so brilliant. So there you go. <laughs> and they'll buy it and they'll give you money. <laughs> Vidya, I do. So on that topic, I've heard some people, they kind of posture themselves as if they're Apple, right? And they're like, oh, well, the world didn't know they needed an iPhone until Steve Jobs told them they needed an iPhone. And we're the same way. How do you address that? Yeah, that's, I love that question because... Um, Steve Jobs actually went and watched a bunch of customers. You know, he didn't say, what do you want? He just watched behavior and he watched what they were doing. And then he came up with a brilliant solution to a need. And it started with the iPod and it went all the way through his line. But he was solving a specific need. And if you think about the iPod, you know, the thousand songs in your pocket, that's amazing and the ability to be able to have on access music when you wanted it, easy access, you didn't have to buy all this music, you could just have access to it very, very quickly. Um, all these albums, you could just buy the, the single song that you wanted. That was brilliant because what you did was like, if you think about behavior, and this is really dating me, but you would, you would buy an album because you'd like two songs on it. And so that was the need. I wanna listen to, these two songs and these two songs and that one song. And so now you have access to do that. So the solution was answering a need, but people could tell him, I love this music, I love that song. And then it's a brilliant solution and a brilliant leap to get to that type of hardware and software solution. But it was still answering a customer need. 
and he watched and listened all the time. So it's just a misnomer that he never looked mm. or watched customers. But it, but I, I, I'm just wondering now, that was also the time everyone was using Napster and downloading songs, right? Wasn't it? Was Those it? thousand songs in your pocket were actually... <laughs> it's like stolen ones. <laughs> Borrowed. Borrowed songs? <laughs> Because where did you get that? Where did you get those songs from? Were people ripping CDs? Well, yeah. Don't you remember? I do remember. It's like as a haze. Was, it, was it all those drugs? It's like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> going a little too far. Um, no, but I, I want to just go back to one other thing, which is I think we talk a lot about observing, and a lot of, and you talked about asking customers what they want. I think trying to articulate and understand by just watching what people do. Mm. So the fact that you would hang out and see someone mowing their lawn or you hang out next door and you know, look at all these people like asking for recommendations for people who want certain... Um, you can see that there's a need for consistency and people are unhappy. Um, you're constantly changing. You don't really have any way. It's like paying. I mean, I think we pay our person once every six months when he bothers to invoice us. Mm. It's just all broken. So your observations clearly showed you there was a need out there. Mm. But I don't know if you ask me, what do I want? What I want is I just want my lawn done. That's what I want. Sure. I don't care how it's done, but your solution is elegant and delightful to solve my basic need. It include weed management. <laughs> oh, yes. Weed. Kamel, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back because this is like this is the topic that really I'm very intrigued about. It's just the, how do you increase your customer acquisition, right? With lawn love, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to me, I mean, I'm just curious. Do you go after the lawn care companies and sign them up, and then expand into territories or cities that they provide service in? Or do you go get customers in cities you're not in that are that want that are shopping for loan care companies and then go find them companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the classic um, marketplace economy chicken and egg problem: you need demand, or you won't have anything for the supply. But if you don't have supply, then what do you do with the demand? And so just through a series of experimentation, really, just um, when I joined Lawn Love, we were in I think six markets and expanding to 135. Uh, we would do them usually in batches of 10 or so markets at a time. And we kind of discovered, again, through data, that if lawn care providers did not see a certain number of jobs on the platform, it didn't matter how slick the marketing pitch was, they immediately decided that you had wasted their time, you're not actually going to provide them any value, and they would just drop off the platform. And so then when we did have demand, we think we have all these suppliers that can take care of it, but they're no longer engaging with us. They've deleted the app. They're not responding to our texts. They ignore our phone calls because they've already bucketed us as, oh, this was just another dead-end legion type of, of company. So in future launches, we began keeping a close eye on kind of getting the consumer demand in place first. And we would just book the jobs out a little bit farther than we ordinarily would. And we'd have a small number of providers that had signed up that agreed to work and you know work through all the policies and understood kind of why Lawn Love existed and what we were going to do for them. And then... I don't want to say fingers crossed, but just kind of treading that fine line on um, slowly ramping up the advertising spend so that we don't shock the supply. Um, but uh, it kind of, it depended 
it turns out based on everything from the highway layout of the cities we were launching. So like Atlanta was considerably different than Houston. Um, so it was mostly just kind of slowly increasing the, so the consumer facing ad spend because it was very, very cheap and uh, effective to get them on Google AdWords mm. as kind of like that initial lead source. And then the providers are more of a um, B2B style onboarding engagement. So, you know, kind of they have to feel you out, make sure are you a scam is usually the first question and, you know, kind of working through like, hey, you know, this is, this is exactly what we're solving for you. Okay, we're providing you more business than you can handle in any given week. So take us for the jobs you need to fill holes in your schedule. We're all over your city. Um, and when you don't need us, that's fine. You can release customers back to our marketplace and someone else will pick them up. So it was, uh, we usually would, we'd lean more towards the demand side. So having more jobs out there for providers to claim. So I'm going to give your C you and your CEO free advice. That's probably going to be worth millions, but I'm going to give it to you for free. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. So, I'm writing it down. So Closing Corp, when we first started, and I'm just joking, not sure it's going to work for Lone Love, but let me tell you what worked for Closing Corp. Sure. The initial founder of Closing Corp started with a B2C concept where he went out, he was getting a mortgage, and he's like, why is my lender forcing me to use all these service providers? Why can't I go and shop my own and decide what title company I want to use, what appraisal company I want to use? And so the idea of Closing Corp, it was closing.com, and it started with a shopping portal where a consumer can log in, and they can put their property address, and it can give them a list of all the different service providers that can do service for their business, whether it's title, settlement, appraisal. Very quickly, they found out, and this predates me, uh, that um, consumers don't want the headache of going out and shopping for service providers. When they go out to get a, a loan, they just want it done quickly, as quickly as possible, with the least amount of headache. Mm -hmm. And so they just go, whatever the lender tells them, yes, am I approved? What's the minimum amount of documentation you want from me? and let's go. So then they pivoted B2C, but they were struggling with that same challenge. I think that Loan Love is going out to these service providers and saying, hey, join our, our portal, and we have these customers that could potentially use you for services, but that never came through. So what they ended up doing was they started giving it away for free just, just to get providers to join the, the network, to be on the portal. And so what happened is because it was free and there was no, you know, there's it didn't cost those service providers any money, the network started to grow and grow and grow. And so then when they pivoted to B2B and went after lenders, many of those service providers that the lenders wanted were already on on the platform. Mm -hmm. So that 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 wasn't the silver bullet, but that helped them a little bit with, you know, that supply and demand concept where they got the lawn care companies and then now can go and target, okay, we have now 10 new loan care companies that do business in Corona. Corona is not a city we're in. Now let's go advertise in Corona. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And then would those loan companies bring their own customers? That would be amazing. Because sure. if they saw so much value in loan love that they would then bring their existing customers onto the platform. That if, would be if, huge. If it would help them, absolutely. If, it, like, for example, managing the orders, having all that done mm -hmm. through Lone Love, referring their customers and say, "Hey, go through Lone Love," and you know. But that that's amazing for me about startups and on the, 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 this this entrepreneurial game because how many times have we heard, especially as we're building as CTOs, 
you know, you build one thing to solve one problem for this one customer profile, and then you pivot, and then it, you know, and then so many stories are well. What we have now is not at all like Slack is a great example. I mean, the, they were never starting out as building a chat tool at all. I think it was a gaming platform chat something, and the chat was like a necessary evil part of it, right? I think it's something like that. And just that iteration and to being being willing to not only do that as a the CEO founders, but also as CTO to, to, to respond to that kind of pushback. I think it's probably harder for a CTO because from a product perspective, you're just chasing where the need is and you're doing experiments and you're honing in. And I think it must be so tough because, I mean, the number of times I've gone and said, we have to change. And being nimble and having a partner that's willing to work with you, I think it is really challenging because everything we're doing is on a paper. It's a concept. It's a conversation. It's research. And you're building things. So yeah. we try as much as possible to try and, you know, do the upfront work to be sure. But you never know how customers are going to use it. That's the thing. And when you strike something that's gold, like you have that discovery, then you've got to move. Love it. Very well said. <laughs> um, no, we, 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 we experience it a lot because what happens is um, as we sign up new customers, they're, they're always asking for this one more thing, this one more thing. And so we have a product roadmap. We've thought through it. We have went through all pragmatic marketing and everything is dotted I's crossed T's. And then we have a big lender that comes in and says, well, I need this feature mm. if you want me to sign up with you. So now, and you know, as an early stage company, we don't have big budgets. Our capacity is fully utilized. And so now we got something's got to give or we got to go spend money and hire more people or get contractors in. So can, is this for, where I can do a plug yeah. for like a different approach? <laughs> Absolutely. Please do. Because uh, no, well, I mean, uh, the, uh, our approach from a product rebels perspective um, is to have that customer driven approach constantly. So there isn't that roadmap and that it's cheaper to be able to respond to that. But what it requires is that you have to put your customer in every product decision you make. And we don't find most product managers do that. So if you do that, it becomes a lot cheaper and your technology partners are a lot more happy with you. Thank you for letting me do that plug. Of course. <laughs> Interesting. Productrebels.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's a tough me, one though. Let right? me, so let me, yeah. Cause so how do you plan for capacity, right? I mean, so interesting concept, right? Uh, you know, probably a lot of what goes onto our product roadmap is customer requests. Mm -hmm. So let me make sure I understand what you were saying, uh, Vidya is saying, you're saying don't have a pre-planned product roadmap, just have as customers requests come in, have that be your product backlog and- So we don't like, so there's, there's requests and then there's need. Okay. Right, so a lot of customers will ask you, and I've worked in really big organizations and billion dollar products where it's endless. And if you just did what they asked for, you've got the next 10 years done. But that doesn't allow you to be nimble. It doesn't allow you to kind of jump to what actually is going to give you market share and discover what's really important. So what, we, what I focus on is how do you take what someone asks for or what you see, and then there's a deliberate turning it into an insight 
that drives an experiment that then allows you to put something on a roadmap. So there's three extra steps that we don't ever, unless it's a bug, unless it's something egregious, you're not turning a customer request into any sort of ticket. It just, you don't have that connection one-to-one and that stops that. So, so do you bring them into your process then? Often, often. Um, you can um, bring them into your process, you can innovate with them, you can show them concepts, but it's really how do you learn, and it's a discipline of everything that you work on being hypothesis-driven. So if you took a group of customer requests um, and you would see a pattern and you would have a hypothesis that something is happening here that allows you to address maybe 10 to 20 different customer requests. But then you have to go test that hypothesis and you test that with customers, which turns into this is what is really going to be the most important thing to build to address it. So that again, it's just trying to avoid like request no, turning no. into work but because that is like, I mean, I've been on those endless spirals no. and you can, it's just hard to get out. And then you get an innovation team to go off on the side and then they're unhappy. I mean, it's just like, you know. I like that because it, uh, it helps the customer discover what they, what they really want. Mm-hmm. But what do, you, what do you do when the customer, when, when you're on the verge of a big deal and the customer says, well, I need this. And, and is that a different use case? Because now it's more of a sales? Well, you know, it's, it, it depends because I mean, there's lots of times where, I mean, it's like we're realistic, you know, there's a big client, they're asking for a major feature, you've got to figure out how to build that into your roadmap. But again, if you can go back to let's build in and what we commit to is spending time with you. We'll have, you know, a six-week or whatever project. We will do that for free in order to understand exactly what you're asking for. And if you do that, mm. often the conversation is less about, I've got to write into the contract. What I've written into the contract is a commitment to go learn, and I'm giving you that in order for me to learn. One committing to the process. I like that. But it does require some, uh, some confidence. And I, say it's, I think it's a different mindset. So uh, I'm still trying to, I guess what I'm curious about is, so would you recommend, so where does the PRM come into play of having a product roadmap or you wouldn't? We have a product roadmap. We just talked about this last week um, with this idea of this is what we're committed to now. Um, this is what we're thinking of next. And this is what we've got on the horizon for later. So you don't have a roadmap with dates. You don't have a roadmap that commits you for the next six months to a year because once you've done that, you've locked yourself in. But if you can say if it's a quarter, if that's what your customer needs, because, you know, you've got big major lenders, um, it might even be the next six months. I mean, there isn't an arbitrary. Some smaller companies, it could be the next 30 days. But you set a period where you're absolutely committed and your development teams are moving. But then the next piece of it is really about exploring and learning. And so this idea of next allows you the flexibility to move things up and down the stack based on what you learn. And so when you're ready to then say, this is now coming up, this is now, everything just like gets moved around more fluidly. So I've tried to move away from anything that has a hard deadline. And I did, I for, for years, I'd put, you know, this is, the month, <laughs> this is the deliverable, this is when the release is, um, all of the deployment. And I think it just hurts you. 
And it's really hard to have that communication with customers, especially when you get big demands, you get a new customer coming in. You can talk about how things move up and down in a lot um, more of a collaborative, collaborative fashion when it really is a different type of roadmap that you're using. Mm. So uh, when you're communicating with the customer or with stakeholders, that now, next, and, and later, later uh, just uses a language that people can understand, but it doesn't commit you to dates. Right. It commits you to the now date. So you could say, hey, this is the now. Yeah, this is my, and this is when it's absolutely going to be deployed. This is what you can expect. So there this are the dates in the now. In the now there is. But yeah. there's not, you're saying not on a micro level, but more on a, there's a, the now bucket will be done. It might know. be one release, there might be two releases. Again, it depends. Like people who continuously deploy, you might have the next but three, then you, four. But you don't have a next date, right? No. Nope. Okay, yes, that's a got it. So it's not like you're you're planning out all these you're just saying there's a now that it's like a spr sprint or x number of sprints mm -hmm. that culminates towards the epic or the date exactly but you're not then saying oh well then the next things will will be done by date plus three months no what you're saying is this, a, this is the candidate list for next mm. and what we'll do as we learn is they'll it'll solidify so is that like a backlog no it's a roadmap it, it is at the theme and feature level. It is not at your backlog. Mm. It's, not, not, not at the it's not even at the epic level. It's at a theme level mm. with high level, mm. potentially okay. epics or, or features in there. Okay. Yeah. Is, does that, how does that sound? He sounds, it looks like he's like, no way. Well, he's computing. I, I'm, I'm trying to see if it works with our customers. Yeah. You know, um, we've gone through these discussions, you know, how long should we plan our product roadmap? Is it a year? Is it six months? Is it, what's it, is it a quarter? And what we've experienced is our customers want to know a year in advance what's what's coming. Um, and obviously that that helps us, but it hurts us in, in, to the points you're mentioning. Or well, sets aside some capacity. You know, you can commit for 50% of your capacity and leave 50%. You can play with this. Again, it depends. I mean, I hate the it depends answer, but when you have certain customers that behave in certain ways and there's big companies that rely on APIs and rely on infrastructure and you can't just show up and say, oh, I'm going to do this, then, you know, there are certain things that you can flow all the way through a year if you want, but just don't use all your cycles. Like say, this is 50% and this is what we've got coming. It shows that you're innovative. It shows that you're responsive you bring them in and you collaborate with them and they see the things that you're working on move into commitments, but everything's not committed. That's the toughest thing. When you used to go in with a roadmap committed for like a year or 18 months used to be really mine. Um, it's so hard going back and say it's changed and you just feel stupid. You feel bad. It's just not a pleasant experience for anyone. So just don't do it to yourself. So it sounds like you're kind of sneaking up like lean manufacturing and, and kind of Kanban principles on unsuspecting companies kind of working <laughs> in these sprints and like, oh no, don't use all of your capacity because look what happens. Is this a conscious decision? It's, it's less about a conscious decision in terms of that methodology and more about if we're truly customer driven and we are learning, we don't know what we'll know and we need to be, we say we're agile. Being agile and having a fixed roadmap for a year you're not agile. You've, you, all you've done is you've broken up your major development into smaller pieces of deployment. That, that's not being 
responsive to your customer? Yeah, I think that that part gets removed quite conveniently. It's the customer part. Yeah. So huh. we'll shove that back in. <laughs> good stuff. Very good stuff. Thank yes. you. Anything else? This was fun. Feel like we're it was. Uh, Thanks for having me. Absolutely, yes. Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO Studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com for more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs. We also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.